coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. We don't want to put it all off because what we know is that if we can also bring some happiness and joy and pleasure into the here and now, well, that's actually motivating. You know? And so it's with, you know, with that pleasure here and now, with that joy or fun in the present moment, that's what sort of gives us the energy to do what we need to do to achieve those longer term goals. That was our guest for today, Dr. Timothy Sharp. You can hear more from Tim coming up very soon. But before we get there, we really have to say a massive thank you to everyone who listens, who supports, who gives us feedback on the show. We started this to try and learn for ourselves. and We hope to give value to everyone who tunes in and listens to the show. This episode today has been sponsored by Burr Clancy. Thanks a million. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke to Dr. Tim Sharp, Chief Happiness Officer at the Happiness Institute, an internationally renowned leader in the fields of positive psychology and mental health. What does happiness mean? Are you happy? How can I be happier? Big questions that we ask ourselves, our children and our friends every day. We unpacked all these with Dr. Sharp, aka Dr. Happy. Dr. Sharp has three degrees in psychology, including a PhD, and an impressive record as an academic clinician and coach. He previously set up one of Sydney's most respected clinical psychology practices, a highly regarded executive coaching practice, and is the founder of the Happiness Institute, Australia's first organization devoted solely to enhancing happiness. Dr. Sharp has worked with hundreds of organizations, including Ernest & Young, IBM, Westpac, and Coca-Cola. He's a best-selling author, of the Happiness Handbook, 100 Ways to Happiness, A Guide for Busy People, and 100 Ways to Happy Children, A Guide for Busy Parents. We spoke about understanding and measuring happiness, joy in sport and business, gratitude, and positivity and engagement in high-performing setups. It was great to hear that negative emotions are normal, that we can't be happy all the time, and dug into the balance of performance and happiness. Dr. Tim Sharp, thanks a million for taking the call all the way from the other side of the world. How are you, sir? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm doing okay. Thank you. And where's home for you, Tim? I'm in Sydney, Australia. So yeah, it is uh, quite a long way away from you guys, I think. And Tim, happiness is such a big concept. I mean, we've seen in Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith, of course, we are pretty sure we have a graph that is pretty important for success and performance. But we're curious as to when did this become the area for you to focus on? Where, when did this journey start? Yeah, well, I, um, I obviously think it's important. Uh, and I actually think it's far more important than most people realize. But uh, maybe we'll come back to that later. And I'll, I'll go to the other part of your question about how did it start. Um, my background is actually in clinical psychology. So I started out in, um, in misery, I suppose. <laughs> I started out as a, as, a, as a clinician and academic and researcher. Um, so I was a therapist working with people with, uh, you know, stress and depression, and anxiety and chronic health problems and relationship problems, all those sorts of things. Um, and I did that for a long time. I was also an academic and researcher. Um, so I had a, I, I said that as the first half of my career and that was, um, uh, well, without sounding immodest, a very successful uh, career. Um, but about, um, uh, well, it's almost 20 years ago now, there were the very early stages of what came to be known as positive psychology. And that's for those who aren't familiar. Traditionally, psychology is focused on uh, or negative emotions. It's focused mostly on distress, on depression and anxiety, etc. 
Um, but around that time, a number of uh, prominent psychologists, mostly in North America at the time, asked uh, a couple of really important questions. They said, you know, for so long, we, we psychologists have been asking what's wrong with people and how can we fix it? What if we were to actually ask what's right with people and how can we make the most of it? And as a result of that, as I said, the positive psychology movement grew. Uh, there was a much greater focus on, on positivity, on happiness, on thriving and flourishing, on life success, I suppose you could call it. And I just love the idea of that. And so started to focus my work more on, on those areas. And that's when I established the Happiness Institute as a way to promote the principles of positive psychology. So you feel it's more important than people realize. Why do you say that? Well, uh, yeah, look, I think most people, well, I think everyone really likes the idea of happiness. I mean, if you were to ask most people, would you like to be happy? Um, you know, not many people would answer no. I think most people would say yes. Would you like, if I were to say, you know, even if you're happy now, would you like to be happier? Again, I think most people would uh, answer yes. Um, but I think that the majority of people um, just see it as a nice thing. Uh, and it is a nice thing. It's obviously nice to feel nice. It's nice to feel good. But what we know from the science is that it's actually much more than that. It's much more significant to our life success. And and by that, I mean that, uh, uh, you know, when we control for other factors, happy people, and I'm talking about genuine happiness here, not just, you know, not just slapping on a fake smile, but I mean, really thriving and flourishing and living our best lives. Um, genuinely, authentically happy people are healthier. Uh, they have better quality relationships. Uh, they perform better in the workplace. Um, I could go on and on, but they, they even live longer. I mean, even if we control for other factors, happy people live longer than less happy people. So that's what I mean when it's more important. It's fundamental to success in pretty much every area of life. And we all really want to understand ourselves how happy we are. I mean, I, I like to think I'm happy, walk around with a smile on the face most of the time, especially when with my children. How can we measure happiness? Is it quantifiable? Yeah, great question. Um, uh, and the question gets to the heart of a really important question, a fundamental part of positive psychology, which is how do we measure happiness? Um, now, at an academic level, um, psychologists have developed, uh, well, actually not, not just uh, one or two measures, but multiple measures. There's actually numerous measures for different types of happiness or different components of happiness. But for the general public or for, for most people listening who aren't necessarily interested in the, you know, the, the full-blooded academic side of this, there's sort of two simple ways that, that we can answer that question. Um, the first is um, the, the simplest way that most people think about happiness is just that it's a form of positive emotion. Um, so along with other positive emotions like joy and contentment and uh, satisfaction and calm and excitement and uh, a whole bunch of things, happiness is a way of feeling good. And most of us can measure that ourselves. You know, if I ask you, are you feeling good in this minute? Are you experiencing joy in this minute? Um, we can answer that pretty simply, or I could even say, you know, from a scale of zero to 10, where zero is no happiness at all, um, and 10 is uh, uh, the most happiness you can imagine, we could then get to, you know, a little bit more sophisticated and people could put a number uh, on that scale. But that form of happiness, that's only one part of happiness, or it's really only one part that positive psychologists are interested in. Positive emotions are important, but what we're really interested in, and I hinted at this a bit earlier, I suppose, is thriving and flourishing, or what in some other contexts is called quality of life or life satisfaction. And that's actually a much bigger concept. That means, um, you know, the question then becomes not just, are you happy now? 
because we know those positive emotions are fleeting and, you know, they can change from minute to minute. Or, um, But what, what we're really talking about, I guess, is uh, a, a better question, I would argue, is taking everything into account. When you look at your life overall, how satisfied are you with everything? And when we start to think a bit more about that question, which is a, a harder question to answer, I suppose, it's a harder one to measure, we then start to look at, uh, well, those positive emotions that I mentioned, but also things like, um, you know, the extent to which we have meaning and purpose in our lives. Um, we then start to think about even our physical health because we need physical health and well-being to do what we want to do. Um, we want to then take into account things like the quality of our relationships, you know, our, uh, with our loved ones, with our family and friends and even our colleagues, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that bigger construct of life satisfaction is really what positive psychology is about. And that's a, a probably more important question than the first one, which is just how happy are you? Although that's a, a, an important question as well. Something that intrigues us, we should be the healthiest, happiest, the fittest generation ever to walk this earth, but it doesn't always show up when we quantify in life satisfaction scores or when we do surveys on the population. Why do you feel that is? Yeah, that's a, well, that's a great question. And to go to the first part of it, I suppose, uh, we are actually healthier than we've ever been. You know, if you uh, look, uh, and this is actually true all across the world, even in some of the developing countries, the, the the lower socioeconomic or the poor countries, people are still healthier. They're still they're actually healthier. They're living longer. Um, you know, in in some areas of the world, we're actually living 10, 20 years longer than our grandparents or great grandparents. So there's been some phenomenal increases in in healthy living. Um, and longevity, we're see, we've seen some phenomenal increases in uh, lower levels of mortality in many, many areas. So, you know, on that aspect, we have actually done exceptionally well, um, which makes the second part of the question uh, really, really interesting. Why are we not necessarily happier? Because we can also look at other improvements all around the world and, and, and ostensibly we should actually be happier. Now, there's a few ways to answer that. One, um, we haven't really been measuring happiness in the way we measure it now for all that long. Um, which might sound a bit strange, but um, it's actually a relatively new field of study. And, and by that, I'm talking about a couple of decades, but in academic terms, that's fairly new. So, you know, if we go back again um, to my father's or my grandfather's generation, uh, we don't really have good research to compare. Um, so it is a little bit hard to answer that question if we're looking really long term. Uh, that being said, um, if you do look at life satisfaction or quality of life or even happiness, over a couple of decades, you know, over our lives for our lifetime, for example, it's been relatively flat, which is quite interesting. Um, and people say, you know, shouldn't it be increasing? Um, which then actually raises a whole bunch of other questions about um, how do we actually compare across different people or across different cultures? Because, for example, if I go back to the you know to some of the points I made earlier about that, let's just take the really really simple zero to ten scale. Uh, where zero is no happiness at all and 10 is the most happy I can imagine. If I were to, for example, rate myself as a seven um, and you, let's say you, um, say David, were to rate yourself as a seven, we don't really know whether my seven is the same as your seven. In fact, they're probably not because it's a subjective judgment. So it's actually, it's actually quite a challenging intellectual discussion, I suppose, or argument to say, even though the numbers look like they're not necessarily increasing, we still don't, we don't really know what that means. And in some ways, it doesn't really mean anything because in some ways, you know, whether my seven's the same as your seven or whether my seven's the same as my father's seven is irrelevant. What, all that really matters is what does it mean for or in, in this context anyway, it's really just about what does it mean for me, how happy am I, and how can I 
possibly increase my own happiness. A huge part of the work we do here with Hawara, work in the corporate well-being, the kind of high performance space, understanding and, and unpacking health and happiness and thereby how that bleeds into improving performance is important. And outcome measures are a huge part of that work, especially outcome measures that are insightful, impactful, and that we can really build interactions and engagements off. How can we really understand where happiness comes into this and how can we even improve our engagements and our outcome measures with happiness very much as a center point? Yeah, another great question. Um, and if we're talking about in the workplace or in an organizational sphere, there's actually a few different constructs we need to take into account there. Um, so there's a whole bunch of research looking at happiness and life satisfaction, uh, and particularly, as I said, in the positive psychology space. But then there's another uh, bunch of research, which is related, there is overlap, which is more about engagement and satisfaction at work. Um, so again, they're slightly separate fields, although they do come together a bit. If we're looking at the organisational space, um, there's a couple of great, well, I suppose, leading organisations like the Gallup organisation. I'm sure you're familiar with them. They've done some fantastic research into uh, into engagement and satisfaction at work. Uh, the Ross Business School at the University of Michigan. That, you know, so these are some of the leaders, and they've actually their academics have developed a number of um, you know, fascinating and really useful uh, questionnaires and tools. So, for example, one of the, um, for me, when it, you know, if we're looking at that space, also more in the individual space as well, one of the most exciting areas is the, uh, is the area of the strengths-based movement. Um, and this particularly coming from my background, my background as a clinical psychologist, where almost all of the focus was on weaknesses, not, not entirely, but most of my work, most of my training, most of my work was as I hinted at the very beginning, uh, focused on assessing where people were going wrong. It was about assessing their mistakes and their failings and their uh, their faults, I suppose. Um, now, that's still important. We still need to do that. And, and where we can identify those things, we obviously want to help people overcome those. But where the, and, and the Gallup organisation, again, has led this, um, uh, led this area quite, you know, quite significantly in the last couple of decades, where positive psychology and positive organizational scholarship has differed has been focusing on strengths and this is the idea that just like we all have faults and failings and weaknesses so too do we all have strengths or positive attributes things that we're really great at or could be really great at uh, and particularly in the organizational space this has been proven to be extremely useful so what we know is that people who uh, who are who are better at uh, identifying and more able to utilize their strengths perform better uh, we know that organizations who allow more people to utilize their strengths outperform comparable organizations. Um, but one of the problems is, uh, and again, going back to the Gallup research, what they've found, uh, and this is pretty consistent all around the world. In fact, it's remarkably consistent all around the world. What they've found is that in most organizations, only about 20% of employees feel like they have the ability to utilize their strengths every day, which means only about 20% of employees feel like they can be their best in the workplace. What that means is about 80% uh, don't feel like they can be there, which is, yeah, what a massive waste of resource. So one of the best things we can do, uh, and one of the simplest things, but one of the simplest and best things we can do within workplaces is try to increase that even just by a couple of percent. I mean, even five or 10%, it, it'll never be 100%. We've got to be realistic. But even if we, and what, what the research has shown is that even if you can bump that up to 25 or 30 or even more, I suppose, the return on investment you get is massive. If a few more people can be uh, helped to identify and then utilize their strengths more and more each and every day, 
uh, you get, you know, they then become more engaged, more productive, they collaborate better, uh, massive, massive benefits. Uh, and this is the best bit, actually, massive benefits both for the individual and for the organization. So, uh, I mean, there are other things as well that are important in the workplace, but that's one of the big guns that is, I think, massively underutilized. That's a really great point because there's always the argument, should we spend most of our time trying to focus on areas of development, our weaknesses, or should we strengthen those things that make us unique, our strengths that are inherent to us? What's your take on that, Tim? They're not mutually exclusive. Um, and so we do need to do a bit of both. Um, so you know, that's, that's actually a really important point. <clears throat> I'm not suggesting, and, and no one's really suggesting, that we should ignore weaknesses. It's not about totally ignoring you know, underperformance or poor performance. You know, those things need to be addressed. But too often in too many organizations, it's only about that. You know, performance reviews in most organizations is really just a euphemism for focusing on weaknesses or areas of improvement. Now, again, that's okay to a point, but at the same time and with the same energy, at least as much, if not more, ideally more, uh, as well as addressing weaknesses, we want to spend at least as much, if not more time and energy on promoting strengths. Um, and again, the research is clear that the benefits that come from that can be quite, uh, uh, well, enormous, really. Yeah, and there's two schools of thought or trains of thought sometimes it's delayed gratification working hard grinding hard to achieve a goal and then you'll be happy mm. versus enjoying everything around you and all every day-to-day -day activities to be happy in the moment where do you fall on that point again this is a really interesting aspect and in, and in some way this is actually a philosophical discussion that's been going on for hundreds of years um you know if you go back to the ancient greeks idea of hedonism or hedonia uh, versus eudaimonia um uh, it's it's a it's a constant debate, and and I actually think again going back to that idea that we just said, you know, it's not about ignoring weaknesses. We need to address weaknesses, but we also need to promote strengths. Well, similarly, it's not about whether we have happiness now or later. We need to get a balance. Um, and if I can just sort of go off track a tiny bit now, I don't know whether uh, you guys are interested or watching this, but you know, I've been watching a bit of the Olympics in the last few days, and um, I think there's a you know there's a lot we can learn from elite athletes. If you look at some of the Olympians who are uh, particularly, I guess, if you look at the winners who are obviously and quite rightly, you know, massively uh, or you know, joyful and, and satisfied, um, you know, that happiness or joy or satisfaction or elation, whatever you want to call it, has come from, as you hinted at earlier, you know, four, five, maybe 10 years of bloody hard work. Um, so, hard work is really important. Hard work, and as you said, delayed gratification can really contribute to. Um, massive satisfaction you know really high levels of of happiness we might going to call it um but we probably don't want to do all of that because then you know if that's all you do you don't necessarily want to put off all your happiness for you know a year or five years or 10 years that's a long time to wait so that's a really important part of living a good life you know i think any of us that have achieved significant significant goals um you know if i think about you know writing a book or completing my phd you know it wasn't all fun um, but it was certainly satisfying. It was certainly worth it at the end of that, you know, whether it was six months or 12 months or three years or whatever. So we do want to, delay gratification is important. We do want to work hard. We want to work towards those bigger, meaningful, important goals that by definition take a bit more time to achieve. However, we don't want to put it all off because what we know is that if we can also bring some happiness and joy and pleasure into the here and now, well, that's actually motivating. You know, and so it's with, you know, with that pleasure here and now, with that joy or fun uh, in the present moment, that's what sort of gives us the energy 
to do what we need to do to achieve those longer-term goals. So um, my perspective is that it's about both and we need to find that balance and, you know, that balance will be a bit different for different people and even for the same people, it'll be different at different times in their lives. Um, but, yeah, I think it's important not to necessarily see them as, as mutually exclusive or dichotomous. I think they can. And, and I think to some extent the holy grail is finding that right balance. And that builds very well into my next point. When we talk about high performance and you know, high performing environments and sporting organizations and institutions, you often find consultants that come in and they focus on building culture and, and ethos and, and getting the correct language in there and the systems to feed into success and ultimately winning, you know, what's really important for sport. Are we missing something when we're not talking about calibration, assessment, defining, refining happiness. Should happiness come into that framework? I mean, we don't even hear the language. Uh, I would say yes. <laughs> and, but I would preface it by saying I'm obviously a bit biased. Um, you know, uh, so I'm coming from a particular perspective. My specialty is positive psychology. My specialty is happiness in a way. Um, and so I'm obviously biased towards that. Um, but I, I do think you know, there's the research supports that it can be incredibly helpful. Um, I also think there's a lot we can learn from you know, high-performing athletes or high-performance um, without a doubt. And that's partly because I've always loved sport and, well, I still, and I still love sport. Um, and there's no doubt that we can learn a lot from you know, elite athletes and professional sports people who, who do achieve it you know, at such a high level. But I think we also need to understand, and you know, whether it's the Olympics or whether it's, well, you know, rugby or football or whatever else it might be, um, elite sports and particularly highly competitive sports, whatever that game might be, it's not the same in a company. I mean, companies are not, they're not necessarily out to win and it's not a win-lose game in the same way. Um, And so I think, again, we need to be a little bit careful as much as I enjoy hearing sports people speak or hearing lessons from, um, you know, from the sports field, as much as I do think there can be some value from that, we do need to understand the differences. And, you know, particularly a a team or organisation, within any organisation, you know, needs to understand some of the differences. And the differences are that, you know, I suppose when it comes to sport, it literally is win or lose. That's pretty much the only measure. You know, if you're a professional sports person, um, there's not really much else you want to do uh, apart from win. Um, I think in a company, in an organisation, there are some differences. One, we're looking at, you know, I think we, we need to look at success over a much longer period of time. And two, there are multiple more complex measures. So although, for example, profitability is obviously an important outcome measure for any organisation. You know, if you're a um, if you're a company, if you're a business, particularly if you're a, a listed company, you have a, an obligation to your shareholders to maximise profits. However, I would also argue that there are some other significant uh, variables that should also be taken into account, particularly if you want to maximise profit over the long term. So, for example, if you want to maximise profit and productivity over the long term, in most organisations you need people. And if you're going to have good, if you want to have good people producing those results, you need to keep good, well, you need to attract good people, keep good people, and keep those people working at a high level. And that's where things like positive psychology and happiness come in. If you don't have those good people, and if you can't attract more good people, and if you can't get those people working well, you're not going to get those dollars at the end of the day. So again, I think that rather than just having one clear, um, pretty black and white outcome measure, win or lose, in companies and teams and organizations, there are far more complexities, I think, 
that need to be taken into account. And, and, and I would argue that at least one of those complex factors, uh, a very important one from my perspective, would be um, happiness. But as long as we understand happiness in the deeper, more meaningful way, not just kind of slapping on a face smile. And then going into a big overview, if you were to define happiness, even on a deeper level, and what were the keys to being happier in your day-to-day life, what would you say? Uh, well, I'd go back to what I said earlier. You know, I think in the very simplest way, happiness is a positive emotion. It's, it's as simple as saying, do you feel good now? Um, you know, that's a form of happiness. But at a deeper level, I would say happiness is living our best possible lives. It's thriving and flourishing. It's taking everything into account. And those other things are, in addition to positive emotions, as I said, it's, you know, do you have meaning and purpose in your life? So, you know, is there something, is there a greater purpose that you feel you're contributing to? Whatever that might be. I mean, your answer to that will probably be different to mine. But what the research suggests is that we we do need something bigger, more meaningful to drive our lives, not just those shorter term day to day, you know, feelings of goodness. Um, we also very much need positive relationships. So, you know, this is an interesting thing, I think. Happiness is sometimes confused with hedonism, but real happiness and certainly longer-term meaningful happiness is in selfishness. It's not hedonism. It's not just about me, me, me. Um, I do need to take care of myself, but real and meaningful happiness, particularly over the long term, is very much about good quality relationships. It's about feeling connected. It's about belonging. That is very possibly the most important factor when we look at quality of life overall. Um, it's also about physical health and well-being. You know, and I think too often physical and mental health are seen as separate things when they're not really. Well, they are in a way. You can measure them separately, but they're very closely related. We know that physical health and well-being is vitally important for the zest and energy we need to live a good life and therefore for happiness. So, you know, we also need to look at things like uh, exercise, which you know, it's not just good for our bodies, but it's good for our brains. Um, it's a stress buster and a mood enhancer. We we need to look at things like diet. Um, and this is actually quite an exciting area, the, you know, the brain-gut connection and the relationship between gut health and mood. Uh, fairly new area, but a really exciting area. Um, and one of the other things that, um, well, I've actually just got a, a, had a new audio book released, uh, which is on sleep, uh, an area that I'm very passionate about. But you know, because you, you can't be happy if you're literally sick and tired all the time, and so many people are tired. So good sleep is foundational to good mental health, and uh, which is you know, which is obviously important to happiness. Um, so there's all of those sorts of things which I would weave into the more complex definition of happiness, um, including things like um, uh, like gratitude, including things like fun and play. You know, we I think we are we sometimes underestimate fun and play. We see them as trivial, but but we need them in life. It's important to have a bit of, um, you know, have a laugh every now and then and a, and a dance. Uh, that's, an impor- that's just as important in some ways as the deeper, more meaningful aspects. And we've talked about success in, in the kind of business space and the sporting world, but I think relationships, something a lot of the work you do focuses on, is, is very important, and especially happiness in long-term relationships. For those families that might well have uh, young children, toddlers, they could be sleep-deprived, you know, it's pretty fair to say there's a lot of irritability and angst first thing in the morning. I, I can speak to that. Mm-hmm. Those families obviously want to thrive and, and have a foundation of happiness, especially for the for the young children. How can we work on that? Yeah, um, well, great question. And if I can, if I can get another plug in, I've, I've, one of my other 
new audibles is about uh, is habits for happy children. So it's it's about positive parenting. Um, and and you know, really good question because I think it gets to the point also that um, you know none of us should expect to be happy all the time. No one. Um, you know, I'm not happy all the time. I don't expect you are happy all the time. No one is. It would be completely unrealistic to expect that we'll be happy every minute of every day. Um, uh, you know, that's it's almost absurd if you think about it. Um, and because, partly because it's, it's unrealistic, but also because the other, um, you know, the so-called negative emotions are normal. They're appropriate at times. You know, as you said, we've all been and are still going through the pandemic in different ways. Um, and so, you know, they're associated with that have been, you know, there's been a loss, there's been sadness, there's been anxiety and fear, there's been, um, you know, frustrations. Um, and that's part of life. So it, the first thing I'd say is, again, no one should expect to be happy all the time. It's okay not to be okay. We need to accept some of those negative emotions some of the time. And particularly, coming back to your question, when it comes to parenting, and particularly parenting of young children, there are challenges. You know, there's no doubt it's a tough gig at times, possibly one of the toughest jobs around. Um, particularly when our children are young and particularly when we're, we're struggling to sleep, um, we will get irritated sometimes. We will get frustrated. We will lose our temper at times. Um, again, we need to accept that that's a normal part of life. It's a normal part of parenting and not be too hard on ourselves. In fact, we, you know, we need to practice self-compassion if we do lose our temper, um, whether it's with our children or with our partner. However, what we know from the research is that it doesn't really matter. You know, the happiest couples are not necessarily happy every minute of every day, but we do know they have a higher ratio of positive interactions to negative interactions. So, you know, the positivity doesn't have to be there 100% as long as there's enough positivity in a sense to outweigh the negativity. So, you know, if you get a bit irritable with your children or your partner, that's that's kind of okay. Just make sure that you sort of manage and contain that and just make sure also that you do the best you can to boost and promote the good times, you know, to make the most of them, to savour them, to create them. And so as long as you can get that balance, well, not a 50-50 balance, I said the, the positive bits need to outweigh the negative bits, you can work at that as best you can, then that's going to be okay. And, and again, you know, it's, it doesn't, we, we need to probably worry a bit less about some of those negative moments um, or, you know, as I said, manage them as best you can. And, and spend more time focusing on boosting the positive ones. And if you can get that positivity ratio right, um, then that's the best we can do probably. Building on the theme of parenting, something that we didn't face when we were younger is social media and technology advancements that we see today. How do parents ensure that children are growing up and seeing the right stuff and not having a bad relationship, but having a very valuable relationship with technology and social media? Yeah, it's a, a fascinating question. And uh, just to go back, actually, I'll just go back to sort of finish off another point about the last question about parenting. Uh, one of the most important things I learned when, I mean, my kids are a little bit older now than yours, I think, I suspect. Um, um, and But I mean, you're always a parent, but particularly, I think the most challenging bits are when uh, with younger and teenage children. And one of the one of the best things I learned, or certainly that helped me the most, uh, was just a phrase that I, I, I was quite a few years ago now that someone mentioned, which is good enough parenting. Um, I think that's what we need to aim towards, not perfect parenting, because there's no such thing as a perfect parenting. But I think so many of us put so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect, and we beat ourselves up if we make even one mistake, that we set ourselves this completely unrealistic uh, goal that we're never going to achieve. But, but if we can aim towards good enough parenting, um, it takes a bit of the pressure off, it makes it much easier, 
And, um, you know, it is a really tough gig. So if we can make it a bit easier, we're more likely to be happy with ourselves, I suppose. So, so good enough parenting should be the goal. Um, coming back to your question, really, really important one, really interesting one, because you're 100% right. Um, I read some research recently which asked um, a whole bunch of parents, you know, what, what are their, basically what's their biggest concern about raising children, about their kids? And the number one concern was technology and social media. So there's no doubt that it's a massive cause of anxiety for parents. Uh, there's also no doubt that, to be perfectly honest, we still don't really know what the consequences or implications are going to be because, again, it's relatively new. I mean, we're so used to technology now, we're so used to social me media that we, we just think it's part of life. But the reality is it's only been a part of our lives for a bit over a decade, really, at the, at the level it is now. So from an academic point of view, we still don't really know what impact it's going to have on, our, you know, on this, this current generation or future generations. Uh, we know some things. We know that there's definitely some pros and cons. We know there's definitely some good and bad, like there is with everything in life. And so my response, I guess, when it comes to managing social media, particularly with children, is what we need. I mean, it's not going to go away, um, you know, although some people might like it to. It's not going to go away. So kids, our kids and future kids are going to grow up with this technology, more technology, this social media, probably different types of social media. So I think what we need to do as parents and in schools and as teachers is face the reality that, that it's there um, and help our kids learn how to use it in a responsible way, um, learn how to make the most out of the good bits. And there definitely are good bits. You know, social media, um, you know, ooh, we've talked a bit about the pandemic, for example. Social media has allowed uh, and, and technology has allowed a lot of us to stay connected when otherwise we wouldn't have been able to stay connected. Um, it allows us to access information, um, which can be both good and bad. Um, it allows us to do so many things that we wouldn't have been able to do in years gone by. So there's a lot of, there is a lot of good with social media, with technology, but we also need to be very careful about um, accessing certain types of information that could be dangerous. Um, and, you know, that, so there's, you know, there's fake news, there's pornography, there's some dangerous content that we probably want to um, not allow our kids to see until they get to a certain age or at least minimise as best we can. Um, we also need to protect against overuse because even though, as I said, there's some good things to technology, spending all day every day staring at a screen is undoubtedly not good for us. So uh, one of the things I encourage parents to ask is not so, you know, a lot of parents say, well, how, how many hours a day should I let my kids, um, you know, stare at their screens? Well, I, I'd, I'd encourage them to ask a different question. I'd say, one of the most important things you want your kids to do and you know for a lot of parents their answers would involve um you know studying and learning at school obviously but also then you know getting exercise getting outdoors uh, weather permitting um interacting with friends playing with friends in the real world so what i encourage parents to do is to list all the positive things they want their kids to do and then put the technology below that um, so whatever time's left over from school, from exercise, from playing sport, from getting outside in the dirt and playing in parks and, 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 and seeing their friends, whatever's left over, then you can apportion some of that to staring at a screen, I suppose. Um, so do you see what I mean? If you flip it around, rather than saying how many hours can I have, oh, they're going to spend four hours staring at a screen, we'll squeeze in, you know, running around the park, put the running around the park first, put the other things a priority, and then squeeze in the technology if there's any time left. And Tim, if we're talking about the history of psychology, you know, clinical psychology, Martin Seligman, your work with the Happiness Institute, positive psychology, 
curious as to where is happiness moving to next? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I think what we, so from positive psychology, I guess we've seen a couple of um, uh, evolutions, I suppose. So that there was, a, and as I said, Marty Seligman um, has, you know, particularly drove the very early stages of that. So, so that, you know, that was kind of happiness uh, 1.0 or positive psychology 1.0. We then saw sort of the second generation, in a sense, the positive psychology 2.0, which was, a, I suppose, for, you know, from going from being a, a, a child, in a sense, or a toddler through an adolescence. Um, what, and what, by that, what I mean, we, we saw a more sophisticated analysis of some of the component factors. So we saw the research of, you know, people like Barbara Fredrickson and people who were delving a bit deeper into some of those components I've talked about and learning, you know, not just the sort of the big, Do we know that works, but how does it work? When does it work? How much is enough? All of those more sophisticated questions. Um, what we're about to see, I suppose, is probably the next generation, maybe you know, 3.0, um, which is still uh, learning more and more detail, getting into more and more specifics with some of those things. But, well, for me, actually, one of the most interesting questions that's coming up now uh, is looking at cultural differences. Um, and this is something that was... Well, not ignored in the early stages, but didn't probably get enough attention to what it, uh, to what it as it should have. And and by that I mean, for example, um, you know, we know that happiness means different things in different countries. So, for example, uh, you know, if, if we were to measure happiness in Ireland or or, or talk to um, uh, Irish people about defining happiness, and then talk to Australian people, uh, we would probably get some slight differences. Um, probably not huge differences because I guess Irish and Australian are, are, there's a lot of similarities there. But if we were then to look at um, countries in parts of Asia and then parts of South America, um, we start to see some slightly more significant differences, and um, and I think that's really fascinating. Um, and it's fascinating when we, you know, when we're looking at bigger projects across countries um, or even within organisations. So you know, it's interesting within an organisation, for example, um, positivity or happiness or engagement with an organisation won't mean the same thing to every person, and it won't mean the same thing to every team. So that, that's one of the more exciting areas that I'm seeing and, and are interested in. You know, how does it differ? How do some of these concepts differ um, in different cultures, uh, or and even across across different genders, for example? Um, you know, does it mean different things for men and women, etc.? Um, different age groups. Um, we almost certainly know that. You know, if you compare baby boomers, for example, to millennials, we see some differences. So, you know, I think that that's a fascinating area uh, and something that we'll learn a lot more about in coming years. As well as, um, uh, I touched on this a bit earlier, we're, we're going to see more and more sophisticated research, I think, looking at the uh, sort of underlying biological and physiological components of happiness. And uh, again, one of the really exciting areas, I think, is, is diet. Um, you know, we don't know a lot about this now, not in a sophisticated way, but to what extent does our diet, what we eat, affect our mood? You know, that, I think we're going to see more about that in the next uh, 10, 20 years. So I'm sure everyone has gotten so much from today. We certainly have. And thanks to everyone for listening. We would encourage everyone to look at Tim's great work on Audible, his podcasts, the Happiness Institute. There's so much valuable content there. But before I wrap up, Tim, I have to ask you the question we ask everyone who comes on the show. What does high performance mean to you? Um, well, I, again, I, well, the risk of not answering the question, <laughs> I would say... It means different things to different people, and I think that's important. So, you know, high performance for an Olympic athlete, for example, means winning. Uh, high performance for me uh, currently means um, 
being satisfied and content with my life. But if you were to ask me 20 years ago, I probably would have given a different answer. Um, so, you know, it will mean different things to different people, uh, different things at different stages in our life. For me personally, if, 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 if that's what you're asking, at this stage in my life where uh, I'm quite proud that I've achieved a lot, uh, I still have things I want to achieve. But I suppose that the biggest thing for me at the moment is really building on the quality of my close relationships with my family, as my particularly as my children become um, well, adults, I suppose, you know, independent grown people, really becoming closer to them, watching them and admiring them grow into who they're becoming um, and being more satisfied, I suppose, with my life. I guess I'm, um, I'm not so much chasing achievement as I was, although there's still things I want to achieve. I'm more about, it's a bit more about slowing down and being content with what I've already got and enjoying, um, you know, and, and I think um, uh, COVID has made me really realise a lot more that uh, you know, we, we really have, uh, we need to appreciate the precious moments we have because we don't know when they can be taken away. And I think uh, you know, so many of us have, have lost a lot through COVID. We've lost opportunities and you know, had to, we've missed out on work or we've had to cancel holidays or lost loved ones even. Um, I think what it's highlighted is the benefit of gratitude and appreciation. And that's uh, well, it's always been a big part of my life, but it's something I really want to focus more on being more and more grateful and appreciative for what I have. And, and I'm lucky enough to have a lot. Dr. Tim Sharp. We were very happy with speaking to you today. We really got a lot of wisdom, a lot of learnings from it. I'm sure everyone that's tuned in and listened to today's episode will very much echo those thoughts. So wishing you all the very best all the way over in Australia. Stay fit, stay well. Thanks very much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.